We began chapter 7 last, last time, uh, and Daniel had received dreams and visions from the Lord during the time of Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So he was still under Babylonian reign when he received these dreams and visions. So there's some important notes about that, because he gets a vision that coincides and corresponds with Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2 was of a statue that was made of various uh, and different uh, materials and elements. For example, it was a head of gold, a head and shoulders of gold, and then there was the chest of silver, uh, the mid uh, section of bronze, and then the legs of iron, and then the feet of iron and clay. Of course, we, we looked at that as being Babylon in the gold and the, uh, the Medo-Persians who would uh, uh, actually uh, come and, and defeat uh, Belshazzar and, uh, and the Babylonians. And so then the Medo-Persians became the, the empire of the world as far as the, the, uh, uh, the rulers of the world, the known world at the time. And then after a certain time, then came... Um, uh, Greece, uh, Macedonia, with uh, Alexander, uh, Alexander the, the Great. And um, what was important about Daniel receiving the vision with Belshazzar is, is or Belshazzar is because uh, he, he knew that the, the first vision that he received of, of, the, uh, of the lion with the eagle's wings was obviously Babylon, and that coincided again with, with, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream and vision. The Medo-Persian, the silver, the, the, uh, uh, the empire of silver, which was uh, coincided uh, with his uh, vision of the bear with the three ribs in his mouth. And uh, that he knew because he was there when the Medo-Persians came and they even called upon him. But after that, Daniel did not live long enough to see the Greeks or the Macedonians come and, uh, and actually conquer the Medo-Persians. So now we get into the issue of, of the prophetic vision that God gives to Daniel. And again, one of the, one of the big crit- criticisms of the book of Daniel as, as being written by Daniel is that, you know, uh, most of these uh, higher criticism scholars say that Daniel didn't really write the, the book of Daniel. It was written by somebody many years who, who would have seen everything happening. But Daniel saw that this nation called Greece or Grecia, uh which was also part of Macedonia, he would write about it in chapter 11. And we're going to get to that, of course, one of these days. But we're going to refer to it a little bit when we get there. Then, of course, after that came the Romans. But in between Greece and the Romans, there were the four generals that we mentioned last week that came out of... of, uh, uh, of Macedonia that uh, took different 
areas of, of the, the world at the time. There, was a northern, there were northern kingdoms and southern kingdoms. There were those who were the Ptolemies with the Egyptians and the Seleucids up in the northern area. And so um, we mentioned the four kings uh, last time. I bring them up because, again, we need to understand that there is an in- intermediary uh, type of, of government in, uh, between Alexander, who was the main uh, conqueror for, for Macedonia and Greece, and the Romans. The Romans actually were not all that much of, of a greater nation until much, much later. So it, it, uh, it may very well be. And, and uh, we'll see. Actually, I want to do this more next time because it will help us go finish the, the chapter, which is my hope, next time. Uh, but to see a, an, an intermediary thing happen between, between the, Greece, uh, the, the Grecian and the Roman uh, reign. But the animals themselves, the, the beasts that are mentioned, notice the difference, and I said this last week, that uh, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had was from man's perspective. Man looks at things from the standpoint of value in this earth. God's perspective looks at these nations as beasts, with beast-like tendencies. A lion, a bear. The leopards, and in this case, leopards with four wings and four heads. Very unnatural. And then, of course, the beast that is really unnameable. A lot of the, the artist renderings of a beast, of the fourth beast, looks very much like some mean-looking kind of uh, Jurassic Park animal with ten heads on his on his, or I should say, ten horns on his head. <laughs> Looks really weird, you know. So if you can imagine a little, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex, but he's got, you know, ten horns coming out of his head. Uh, it's really hard. It's really hard to have an artist rendering about those kind of things. So anyway, so here we are in verses seven and eight because we looked at verses one through six, and those are the first three kingdoms that were seen in the vision. We go on with verse 7 of chapter uh, 7. After this, Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast. Behold a fourth beast. Notice, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. And I mentioned just briefly last week that iron teeth is unnatural. It's a beast, but it's unnatural. It has unnatural things about it. It says in uh, the end of uh, chapter 7, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7, it devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold there came up among them another little horn. Take note of the little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So the little horn has this tendency then, uh, being little in the sense of being surrounded by ten large horns representing kingdoms, one little horn actually will uh, pluck up three horns by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. I think we know who that is. 
right? I think we know who that is describing. So, well, if you don't know, we'll mention it in just a minute. But after the three previous beasts are mentioned by Daniel, the lion, the bear, and the four-headed leopard, a fourth beast comes forth in this vision, which corresponds again to the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Now, it is traditionally considered that both the iron legs with feet of iron and clay and the abominable beast described in these two verses represent the Roman Empire and the revived Roman Empire. Now, again, I say that traditionally speaking, that's what most commentators will say. And I mentioned previously in our study of the book of Revelation that I'm not convinced completely that a revived Roman Empire from a Western European perspective. Do you understand what I say when I say a Western European perspective? Because most everybody said back in the 70s when we were studying prophecy back then, some of you weren't born yet, but when we were studying these things, uh, you know, the, the, the first thing that everybody did was they started looking at Europe. Because, well, Rome is obviously in Europe. It's in Italy, and Italy is in Europe. And so they started having this European perspective that something out of this European area was going to actually not only rise up again in a revived Roman Empire, but it was also going to, out of it, would come the Antichrist. And so that, that was the kind of the, the, uh, the sad traditional viewpoint for many, many years until Europe began to consolidate it, it itself as a community. It became the European community and uh, whatever it is called now. Uh, but, uh, but it had ten, you know, I, I think it had a few nations. And then, it went, then eventually it got to ten and we said, there it is, ten nations. And then after that there was eleven and twelve and thirteen and fourteen. And it went all the way up to twenty-some you know, 28, 29 nations in the European community. So now we have to rethink, you know, what are we doing about the 10 nation confederacy? You know, the 10 toes on the statue and, and the 10 horns on the, on the beastly animal here in this picture. What are we going to do with that, that 10? Strange thing. When you try to do something that, that is written to an Eastern or Middle Eastern mindset, and, and, and try to incorporate Western thinking. Even though the New Testament of the Scriptures is written in Greek. And, and remember, you have to understand something. The, the, the Lord came first to the Jew, but also to the Greek. So the, the whole idea, of course, is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. But the word of God comes from a perspective that is far from our, you know, our established thinking. Because uh, our established thinking here in the West is from a Western perspective. So I'm not completely convinced that a revived Roman Empire from a Western European perspective will arise as powerful as the beasts that are being used to describe an end-time power. 
Europe today is not only becoming financially bankrupt, but it has become in many ways spiritually and morally bankrupt as well. Now I've mentioned that that the historic and ancient Roman Empire was more than a Western power. It was more than a Western power because it encompassed a good portion of Asia Minor, which is, by the way, Eastern. Northern Africa, which is very much Eastern in its ways, customs, and thinking. And what we know as the Middle East, which is definitely Eastern. So the current plague upon civilization today, what some call and what others don't want to call extreme Islamic terrorism, has spread its wings throughout the nations today through its radical cry for jihad. Holy war. It's in all the papers. It's on every news outlet. Every day, we get some new report of the atrocities of ISIS. And now they're having children shoot people on videos. I hope you don't watch these things. And it's spreading because, you see, Islam has spread because Muslims have moved out of the areas where they lived and went west. But what doesn't change? For the most part, they don't change. They take their Eastern thinking. They take their Islamic thinking. And what do they try to impose upon the nations where they go? Their law, Islamic law, Sharia law. So there really isn't anything Roman about it, is there? Is there? Now, a lot of people would say, well, you know, but, but you know, we, we, we look at Rome because Rome, I mean, that's where, that's kind of the center of the, of the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church is all, you know. Listen, I understand that there are a lot of things that the Catholic Church does not do properly and right. Biblically, they don't. I mean, they don't. And I, and I have to say, when you listen to the Pope today, that this Pope here is, far, is a far cry from, 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 honestly, Catholic doctrine. If you know a little bit about Catholic doctrine, he goes against that too. So I'm, I'm just trying to tell you right now, you know, that I understand. And I'm not dismissing those things. And the corruption of the Word of God over the many, many years. But what we must come to grips with is that today the tentacles of Islam are spreading throughout the whole world, creating a foundation in the hearts and minds of many that the only way to achieve peace worldwide is to accept Allah as the only God and Muhammad the Prophet and the Quran as the only true document and testament to call true and sufficient. You want peace? then you have to do that. That's the only way. And it isn't surprising that the Islamic world is at odds with each other for supremacy within itself. More on that later. 
So there are a few points that I want to state before we get into our text that we might consider a probable alternative view here. And again, I did this with the book of Revelation. So when I mentioned to you that, you know, the legs of iron or this, this beast that we're looking at today uh, has something to do with the Roman Empire, we have to admit that it does. What, what do we have to admit? Well, the Roman Empire stretched through that whole area and it didn't just have Western uh, 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 sections. It didn't have just Western legions. It also had Eastern legions. And, and, and at times, sometimes even greater in the eastern portions of, of the Roman Empire as far as the armies. And we'll see what I mean. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. So, first of all, the scriptures themselves, what we call the Old and the New Testaments that make up the Holy Bible, is first and foremost a Middle Eastern book. First and foremost, that is what it is. It is mostly a Middle Eastern book. Our problem for too many years has been to examine and study the scriptures with Western eyes and a Western mindset. But when examined closely, there is nothing Western in biblical prophecy. Now, this might shatter some things. I just want you to just follow along with me for a little while. Bear with me for just a minute. Take, for example, the military commander Titus. Now, how many of you know what Titus did back in AD 70? Titus ended a Jewish rebellion in A.D. 70 that led him to besieging, capturing, and destroying the city of Jerusalem and the second temple, something that Jesus had actually prophesied. So he was the one, he was the commander who besieged, captured, and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the second temple. And this Titus would later become the Roman emperor Titus Flavius Caesar Vespasianus Augustus. That was a major title to say he was now a Caesar. He became, in other words, the emperor. The legion that he had commanded, though, and this is what we want to know about him, the legion that he commanded in the destruction of Jerusalem was actually the eastern legion of the Roman Empire. Now take note of that. Not the Western Legion. This is, a signif- this is significant because Titus is considered by some to be a type of one mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. So if you will, let's turn over to Daniel chapter 9 for just a moment and look at a part of verse 26. The first part of verse 26. In Daniel 9 verse 26, it says, And after three score and two weeks... So that's 62 weeks. And we're not, I don't want to get into the details of this prophet, part of the prophecy because all of this has to do with, with Jesus as well. And we'll do it when we get to Daniel 9. But after threescore and two weeks, which is 62 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And notice this phrase, And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, a type, as we've talked about types before, Joseph, a type of Jesus, Isaac, a type of Jesus, uh, many different other people, Judah, a type of Jesus, all throughout the scriptures, a type would, they're not actually that person, but they act and do certain things that make them a type of one that either is to come or that is living at the, at the time. So some consider that Titus is the type of this prince who comes and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, he did that, didn't he? 
In other words, Titus was the type of one who is coming later to do the very same thing again at another time. So, uh, he, can, he can be a type of this prince. Doesn't necessarily mean he's exactly that prince, but a type of. There have been people in the scriptures that are types of, of Jesus that aren't, aren't Jewish, for example. The Samaritan. The, the good Samaritan, you know, there, there's a type, in essence, of the, of the compassions of Christ, as, as it were. So Titus acts as a type here of this prince. But this is not what I want you to see. It's that whole uh, uh, phrase, the people of the prince that shall come. Now, the people of the prince that shall come. As I said, Titus is considered a type of the prince in that he led his forces to destroy Jerusalem in a very devastating way. But notice that the people of the prince that shall come would be the ancestors of the future Antichrist. Okay, so you're up with me on that. You understand what I'm saying? The people of the prince that shall come. So the prince that is coming, these are his people. So consider for a moment who composed the 10th Roman legion in Judea. Or what was called, well, it wasn't even called Palestine at that time. So in Judea or in the area that Pontius Pilate had, had commanded or had governance over at that time. Who composed the 10th Roman legion in Judea? I don't want to go into all the specific names, but let me just say that it was a mixture of peoples from the regions of Syria, Bulgaria, Turkey, all three regions uh, uh, formed a number of, of, of uh, armies or, or, or groups that became part of the Eastern Legion. So Bulgaria, which is an Eastern European nation now, but that was back then it was the area where Bulgaria is. Syria, which has always been there, so we know where that is. And Turkey, that's always been there. That's Asia Minor. Arabs then, also from the areas east of the Jordan, there were groups in the, in the legion that were from uh, areas that are today modern-day Jordan, uh, but on the, on the other side of the uh, Jordan uh, River, the eastern side of the river, which are mostly Arabs, uh, Arab people. And then also groups from the deserts of present-day Arabia. These are the people that destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So keep that in mind. If this is saying, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. When Antichrist, who is the prince that this is referring to, comes, the people of the prince that shall come so who are the ones that destroyed? I know the argument can also be, well, you know, are they types of? But this is more specific in terms of where they are because the actions are not going to all of a sudden move from Jerusalem to Rome. They're not going to move from Jerusalem to Paris. They're not going to go from Jerusalem to London. What happened in Jerusalem will happen again in Jerusalem by the people of the prince. 
Secondly, consider that all of the action that takes place in the Scriptures does so in what we call the Middle East. Thirdly, and most importantly, the conflict that is currently taking place in the Middle East, again, you all see the papers, you all read this, you all see the news, the conflicts that are taking place in the Middle East can be traced back through the lines of Sarah and Hagar or Hagar. Genesis chapter 16, and I'll just let you read that. Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. But if you carry it a little further, if you carry it a little further back beyond that, what then was the root of this struggle between Sarah's descendants and Hagar's descendants? Well, that would take us all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. And most of you know what Genesis 3.15 is. It is a statement made by God to the serpent after the serpent has tempted Eve and of course Adam as well who stood there said nothing. But after they disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he gives them their sentence. Man is going to have to live by the sweat of his brow the rest of his days. Woman will have to conceive, uh, you know, as far as with pain and childbirth. The serpent himself would be crawling throughout the rest of his life, not standing any longer. We We can't even picture what that is. But this is what God said to him. He said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Isn't that interesting that we're talking about seed here? It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And what happened in the garden that day? But the serpent did everything he could to make it clear to Eve, deceiving her, taking her off balance, playing upon her emotions and her feelings and her desires. And he says, in effect, did God really say that, calling God a liar? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all in the garden that day. He doesn't want you to be like him. the pride of life. So go ahead and eat the fruit. You'll be just like him. Which was a lie. That was all a lie. Because we're not just like him. Even man in the garden was not like God, even though he was made by God. And then in the image of God, he was not God. There was only one God. 
And it was clear who gave the commandment and it was clear who was supposed to follow the commandment. And there was only one commandment. And it wasn't followed. But the point of the seed here, an enmity, a hostility. Has there not been hostility from the very beginning of this feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys? Between Isaac and Ishmael? Enmity, you see. That's the word. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Between the serpent. Folks, let's not be confused any longer if... I have much better hopes for all of you here that you all understand we don't worship the same God as the Muslims, right? We all know that. We all, we all know that. I don't know why all of a sudden diplomats and, and politicians and all kinds of people are telling us we do, but they're not theologians. They must not really know what's going on because they're not... How can they? How can there be a any real fellowship. There can't be. I don't want to go into all the details of, of, of Islam, but we'll go because I've done it before already. The, the point of the matter is the battle is so so fierce the enmity, the hostility is so deep. The hatred that Satan, the serpent, has and has had for God, for the people of God, the Word of God, the Church of Christ, uh, in other words, the body of Christ, and specifically for Israel and for the Messiah of Israel cannot be matched. I mean, no one can match this hostility in this world. And we're seeing a lot of the evidence of that hostility today. And consider one last thing. There, there is an Islamic mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, not, not a Catholic church. You ever thought about that? And all the nations the Lord will do battle against upon His return are listed by name by the prophets and that they are currently located in the Middle East and are occupied mostly by Islam. All those nations that are mentioned in the Scriptures are going to be judged by God. Again, very clear. But more on those issues later. Suffice it to say that in this understanding, the beast that we are going to look at this evening is a different kind of beast than all the others. A different kind, a more devastating kind of, 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 uh, of beast. Uh, I mean, this is truly a mongrel beast. Because we can't, we can't compare it to any kind of other animal. I mean, the other words, you know, yeah, okay, there's leopards, got four heads, but it's still leopard. There's a bear and he kind of stands on one side like this, you know, like I guess he's on the circus or something, but there's a bear and he's still a bear. And there's a lion with eagle's wings, but it's still a lion and we all know what a lion does and can do. 
So this is a true mongrel beast. I mean, no real animal to symbolize it. It is unnatural. It is dreadful. It is terrible, exceedingly strong. Teeth of iron that will crush anything in its past or his path and, and, and then whatever else confronts it will be trampled under its powerful feet. We, all, we also notice in verse 7 of our text, go back to verse 7 if you look at it for just a moment, that this beast has ten horns corresponding to the ten toes of the statue in chapter 2 representing nations or kingdoms. But then there's a new feature that's introduced in verse 8 and that new feature is that there came up a little horn. So let's get a little clarification. Go to Revelation chapter 13, if you will. Revelation 13. And let's look at verses 1 through 3. Because here in Revelation 13 it says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. Now notice this here. A beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. This is an interesting three of the, the, the first three beasts mentioned are incorporated into this one big beast. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Uh, we can kind of compare that, I guess, to the you know, to the little crown, or I should say the little uh, horn. So here in Revelation, the same monster is described in features derived from the other three monsters, the leopard, the bear, and the lion. Now, the list here is reversed in Revelation 13 because John is looking at it from a future position looking back while Daniel is writing looking forward. So they just, you know, so they just kind of look at it from those different perspectives. The significance is that the fourth beast has not grown away from the others, but has retained all of their brute, bestial, and monstrous traits. The beast also appears with ten horns, representing ten kingdoms, led by ten kings or leaders. So let's look at the little horn for a moment. It had an insignificant beginning in its growth. It was able to uproot three of the existing horns, which again we'll talk about later. This little horn was, was noted for his intelligence because it says he had eyes like the eyes of a man. Uh, it was known for its blasphemous claims because it had a mouth speaking great things. By the way, great things here in the King James means boastful things. So more from an arrogant point of view is this mouth... Uh, giving out boasts of itself. So this little horn would subdue three of these kings, perhaps because they refused to submit to his authority. You know, he will certainly exalt himself and put down the Most High God. We know that from Scripture. If we talk about the Antichrist, we find many references that coincide with each other about the character and nature of the Antichrist. For example... Second Thessalonians, I'm going to work my way back to front. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, the day of the Lord, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, the son of lostness, as it were, 
who, verse 4, opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So that is the very purpose of Antichrist in his own self is, is to give himself as, a, as an image of the devil himself. He's, he's the devil personified in essence. And then there is Revelation chapter 13. If, uh, I should have told you to keep your finger there. Revelation 13 verse 5. It says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy. So that coincides now, of course, with Daniel. That talks about him having a, a boastful mouth saying great things. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And we know that it isn't just the atheist who does that. Atheists do that because, you know, they don't believe in any God. It's not talking about just atheists. Again, the Most High God who said, Ishmael is not. Ishmael is not the chosen one. Isaac, through Sarah, will be the one to, through whom Messiah will come. Upsetting. Cause for the Hatfields and the McCoys again. Who does he sound like? Isaiah 14. How art thou fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning. Light bearer. That's what Lucifer means. Light bearer. How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Well, what happened? Can I have my can I have my my, my slide back? On my way. I'll find it. Almost there. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Five I wills of Lucifer. In other words, he had an eye problem. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I press the right button. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. As we move to the next portion of our text, we'll move on to the next couple of verses because of time. Daniel seems to be taking a completely different course now at this point at this juncture here. So he's given us, uh, you know, a, a, a quick writing because he wrote this down of, of what he saw in his dream. But then he 
he seems to take a different course. The ideas of the coming uh, of the different beasts are set aside to look at something entirely unlikely. But if you compare the dreams and visions of Daniel to those of Nebuchadnezzar, you'll see that Daniel's vision in chapter 2 actually flows out of that dream. But only now do we get some new and different details. So let's look at verses 9 and 10 of our text. It says uh, in Daniel 7 verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, which actually, that's a little bit hard to understand. Literally it means till the thrones were established. Okay, so you'll know. I beheld till the thrones were cast down or established, and the Ancient of Days did sit. The Ancient of Days is God Almighty. Some people say, well, is it Jesus? It could be, but more than likely it is actually God the Father. Nonetheless, it goes on, and that's because Jesus is mentioned in, in, a, in another person uh, throughout this prophecy. So that we'll just get that out of the way now. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. That's why people think it was Jesus. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. And again, we're going to come back to that. And then look at verse 10. A fiery stream issued uh, and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And notice the judgment was set and the books were open. Wow. That is quite a scene. But I want you to compare that to Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. So you can see that he didn't just all of a sudden stop looking at the dream and decided to look at some other dream. This is all in conjunction with each other. Daniel 2, verses 44 and 45, if you'll notice, says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So immediately... In that vision to Nebuchadnezzar, we see that there is mention of a God in heaven who sets up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So all of these, all of these kingdoms of the earth are, are mentioned, but then now God raises up his own kingdom. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. In other words, the, the kingdom of God, led by, by Jesus Christ himself, will come and and actually break in, uh, in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, so all the nations mentioned in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. So this is a prelude then to the judgment of the nations. A prelude to the judgment of the nations. It is going to take place during the time of these kings that the Lord Jesus returns and sets up His kingdom.